If you will, make your way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, and we're going to consider today the first six verses in this chapter in a message entitled, The Salvation of God. When we start to think about Christmas and all that goes along with it, it brings to mind family gatherings and food and festivities, friends, shopping, travel, the exchange of gifts, a lot of things that surround the celebration, times of worship, times of gathering to reflect and to remember and to exalt God for what he has done. And we know that the true meaning of Christmas is about what God has done through his only son, the gift that God has given to us through the Savior, Jesus. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, it says, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel uh, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. In his book, Psalms of My Life, Joe Bailey wrote this. Praise God for Christmas. Praise him for the incarnation for the word made flesh. I will not sing of shepherds watching flocks on a frosty night or angel choristers. I will not sing of stable bear in Bethlehem or lowing oxen, wise men, trailing distant star with gold and frankincense and myrrh. Tonight I will sing praise to the father who stood on heaven's threshold and said farewell to his son as he stepped across the stars to Bethlehem. And Jerusalem. And I will sing praise to the infinite eternal Son who became a most finite baby, who would one day be executed for my crimes. Praise him in the heavens, praise him in the stable, praise him in my heart. What I want to do this morning in the time that we have together is progress through these few short verses in Luke chapter 3 and learn some things about the Messiah. Learn some things about the significance of what God has done. And the first part that we see here is the preparation for the Messiah. Beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now it's interesting that silence shrouds the first 30 years of the lives of John the Baptist and Jesus, save for a few 
minor insights that we get into the story which tell us some significant things. We've already considered that brief episode when Jesus was in the temple and he stayed there while his parents made their way back toward home when he was at the age of 12. What we know from these years, we learn, uh, Scott, could you turn me down just a shade? Um, What we learn uh, from these years, we really learn from the prophecies that set these years up and the insight that we get into these short narratives that the Gospels give us. And at six months in his mother's womb, John the Baptist leapt at the sound of Mary's voice. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Even then, God was preparing to use him in a profoundly significant way. And in Luke chapter uh, 1 in verse 80, it says that the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. It was during that time in in the desert, during that time in the wilderness, that John the Baptist was gaining his prophetic voice. His life was being shaped into not only the character that he would be, but the message that he would share. All of this was in preparation. All of this was in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And we find John here placed between the historical context of the Old Testament and the arrival and the appearance of hope in the New Testament. He surveys the political and religious leadership, Luke does, from the distant to the more close-up authorities. And in that, he tells us some important things. He's given us these historical figures to establish dates and also context. He's providing for us a historical record, and the events of the life of Jesus are told to us in this way because the gospel writer is reminding us that all of this happened in a particular time, in a particular place, in a moment of history, and in an era of history that was profoundly significant, with John beginning his ministry somewhere around A.D. 29. Tiberius Caesar was the stepson of Augustus. He reigned from 14 to 37. The reference reminds us here that It was Rome that was in dominion over Israel. They were not a free people. They were under a strong government. But in the midst of that, God was still about to do something important. Uh, Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea from 26 to 36. And he lives in infamy because he was the one who later on delivered Jesus over to be crucified in order to satisfy the Jewish leaders. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. He reigned over Galilee from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. And later he would be the one who would imprison and behead, have beheaded John the Baptist. Philip was Herod's brother. He ruled over a region to the east and to the north of Galilee. This man named Lysanias was the governor of Abilene further to the northeast. And then we have these religious leaders who are referenced in Anna and uh, in Annas and Caiaphas. These were prominent spiritual leaders and essentially they shared one high priesthood. Here was Annas who was the high priest from AD 6 to 15, but he was deposed by the Roman authorities. Several of his sons and eventually his son-in-law Caiaphas replaced him. 
Annas was the one who held the power and the title so that these two men were referred to under what was essentially one priesthood. But here was the problem, and we must not miss this. These men were not spiritual leaders looking for a coming kingdom to honor the coming king. These men were political leaders. These men were people who were chasing after human power and human influence. They were not concerned about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the situation into which Jesus was born was a time when politics and spiritual conditions were corrupt. And this was the environment in which John the Baptist came to minister. Remember, for 400 years, there had been no prophet in Israel. There'd been no one who was calling the people back to spiritual matters. There was no one who was given a spiritual voice. And those who knew God and hoped in the scripture were even so waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And hear me very carefully at this point. Then, as in our day, hope and deliverance was not to be found in the political arena. It was a temporary construction of God to bring order and structure to society But hope and deliverance can only come through Jesus. He's the only one who can bring that to us. And it was God who prophesied through Isaiah and later Malachi that he would send a messenger. And this messenger would come in preparation before the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14 says, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In Luke we see the big picture. When John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus, what he's doing is he's preparing the way for salvation and light and peace and hope and deliverance. And the Bible says in verse 2, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness or in the desert. And this was light shining into the darkness. This was the good news. John was not in Jerusalem or in Rome. John was not in the centers of power. John was in the wilderness. John was not in the midst of what people would have thought was prominent and important. John was not in the middle of what humanity would grab hold of and say, this is our hope. This is our deliverance. John was in the middle of nowhere. And what that tells us is that God is sovereign over the seats of power, but God often works in unusual ways and God works in out-of-the-way places. And the literal translation here is that the word of God came upon John. 
G. Kimball Morgan said the force of the preposition is that of pressure from above. That the word of the Lord, the word of God came upon his prophet and pressed down on him from above. John the Baptist, who had been filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, felt the weight of the word of God. He felt the weight of what he was doing in his role in preparation for the Messiah. And he felt that pressing down on him. And this is a call that was similar to the call of the other prophets. And John the Baptist would appear on the scene with his uh, long and flowing hair and a robe of camel's hair girded with a leather belt in the very presence of this man was a call to repentance. God's timing is perfect and John the Baptist prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. And then second, we find the proclamation of the Messiah beginning in verse three. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke introduces John's ministry and the content of his message with a clear statement. He went into all of the vicinity here around the Jordan, and he's in that area of the the rolling badlands, as it were, in the hill country of Judea to the west and the Dead Sea and the lower Jordan uh, to the east. It's an area of uh, the promised land that stretches northward to the point where the Jabbok flows into the Jordan. It's an area of desolation. It's an expanse of soil that is covered with small stones and broken stones and rocks. It's here where the brushwood appears and where the snakes would be crawling beneath. And it's clear, however, from verse 3 that the terrain of John's activity extended even beyond that immediate area. And the Bible says that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, what is repentance? Well, biblically, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's a change in your heart's direction. So you're going on your own path. You're doing as you please. You're an independent operator. You're rebelling against the holiness of God. You're setting the rules and you're doing what you want to do in the selfishness of your heart. And then a word comes from the Lord, a word like what came from John the Baptist. And it stops you in your tracks and it reminds you that this is not the right way to go. This is the broad way and the broad road leads to destruction and the voice of God is saying to you that there's a narrow road and that that narrow road leads to life. And the convicting power of God comes upon your soul and upon your heart and you have a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior and you turn away from the broad road and you step your foot onto the narrow road and you begin your journey with God. Forgiveness is the gift of God that comes from a judicial act of God. Forgiveness is the release from an obligation. It is a pardon from God who alone is the one who can forgive. And forgiveness comes to us from repentance, not from baptism. Baptism is a way of expressing what is happening on the inside. 
but it's not the washing of water that actually forgives you or grants you the gift of God. Uh, Peter talked about Noah being saved from uh, the time of the flood as a picture of baptism. And here's what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people were saved through water. And then here's what the scripture says in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Understand that forgiveness comes uh, from what happens in your heart. Sin is, is wrapped around us. It It has us in bondage. It has us tight in the grips of the enemy. It has us wrapped up in our own self-will. Sin has us in the chains that keep us from being freed up to serve God. And forgiveness is when those chains are broken. It's when the shackles fall off and the light comes. Forgiveness represents complete victory over sin and freedom from sin. And what baptism does is it is a picture of what has taken place on the inside. What God has done in your heart. The new work of regeneration that God has wrought in your life. And the beauty of this message of forgiveness is that it is for all people in every place and in all times. You understand that the greatest need of humanity is to be right with God. If God created you, if God gave you life, if God called you into being, if God put you on this earth, then what would follow is that your greatest need would be to be right with the one who made you and gave you life and called you into being and put you on this earth. But it's our sin that separates us from God and God reaches down. That's the message of the incarnation is that God sent his only son. This is the proclamation of what John was saying is that the Messiah is coming. Prepare the way. Get ready. And baptism doesn't bring forgiveness of sins, but John's baptism followed the repentance of the people as a sign of it. So what John was doing was calling people uh, away from their sins and submitting to that baptism was a sign that they were turning from their sins and they were anticipating the Messiah that John was proclaiming. Even Josephus, the Jewish historian who was not a believer, understood this. He wrote uh, of John's baptism, he was a good man and had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives to practice justice toward their fellows and piety toward God, and so doing to join in baptism. In his view, this was a necessary preliminary if baptism was to be acceptable to God. They must not employ it to gain pardon for whatever sins they committed, but as a consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already thoroughly cleansed by right behavior. 
So think about it this way. John's baptism pictures a preparation of what God was about to do in the Messiah in just a short time in their presence. John's baptism was looking forward. Believer's baptism is looking back. John's baptism was anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Our baptism is exalting the fact that the Messiah has come and that we are identifying our lives with his life and his death and his resurrection. And John, filled with the Spirit, preached this message. He proclaimed the Messiah and many came out of the Jordan Valley and they repented and they asked for baptism. What follows here in the text in Luke chapter 3 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 3 to 5 to show John's ministry in proclaiming the Messiah was in fulfillment of prophecy. And in the book of Isaiah, it's really interesting because all the way up through uh, about chapter 39, it's judgment and wrath. I mean, it's a heavy hammer that is falling. It's a reminder of the holiness of God and the awfulness of sin. It's a reminder of the need for people to turn from their sin and turn to God. But then when we get to chapter 40, the tone changes and the doom and the gloom is lifted. And all of a sudden we arrive on this vista of hope and healing and the light begins to shine because he's pointing to the reality of the Messiah that while God's people had long been in darkness, they were in this sense of night. It had been a long and a grueling night, but now the sun was peaking just above the horizon and the light was beginning to shine and the prophet was promising that the Messiah was coming. And that's exactly what John's proclamation was all about. In verse 4 in Luke chapter 3 says, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. Here's what's being illustrated in these few verses. The prophecy indicated that when a powerful ruler was about to visit a city, the citizens wanted to get ready. They wanted to prepare themselves because a king was coming. So they would go even as far as to construct a smooth, broad road so that when the king arrived, He would have a smooth way. He would have a proper place for his arrival. And when that king would visit the city, he would send someone before him. And that someone who was going before him was uh, announcing that the king was arriving soon. The herald would go around the city and he would tell the city that the king is coming. Get ready. And that's the message of John the Baptist. There's There's a king who is coming get ready. There's a Messiah who is coming, get ready. There is a light that is about to dawn, get ready and prepare yourself because he is on the way. And the vision that Isaiah gives us that's reiterated here in Luke's gospel is a magnificent thoroughfare through what amounts to a rough mountain 
wilderness. And he sees in his vision mountains flattened and valleys filled to make way for the coming of the Messiah. And the angel told Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 32 that her son would sit on the throne of his father David and he would reign over Israel forever and to his kingdom there would be no end. Zacharias's prophecy about Christ in Luke chapter 1 and verse 68 to 75 says essentially the same thing. When Jesus was born, the angels came and announced his birth and gave him a kingly welcome. And this highway language is figurative, but what it represents is it represents the highway of repentance. It represents the fact that we're in a, a dangerous territory apart from God, that there are many pitfalls along the way, that the valleys of life are deep, that the mountain peaks are high. But because of what Jesus Christ would do, he would make the way straight and make it possible for us to be forgiven. And John is asking these people to prepare their hearts for the arrival of the Lord, to take action, to depend on God. And he couldn't do it for them. He couldn't tell them uh, that they had to do it. They had to turn to God on their own. Did you know it hasn't changed at all today? People with a contrite heart look to God with expectation of what God will do. And they depend on him by faith. The proclamation of the Messiah tells us to turn, to repent. God uses messengers. And that brings us to the third and final part of this message. And that is the purpose of the Messiah. Look again in chapter 3 and verse 6. And everyone will see the salvation of God. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. John was calling people to repent because the kingdom was near. It was very near. And the Lord of that kingdom had already arrived and was about to be unveiled. And the need to prepare the way for him through repentance was more urgent than ever. And as we see on display, as we move through the gospels, preparation was needed because an unprepared heart doesn't understand the need for a king. An unprepared heart doesn't recognize the arrival of a king. And he's saying in verse 6, Everyone will see the salvation of God. Not that everyone will receive it, but everyone will see it. What is the salvation of God that he's referencing here? It's the idea that we're saved from judgment, even though we deserve judgment because of our sins. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the biblical understanding is that sin separates us from God and it brings the consequences of sin, which uh, is death. Salvation refers to being delivered from the consequence of sin, but it also includes the removal of sin through the forgiveness that God gives to us through the blood of Jesus. So the bottom line is we are saved by God. You can't bring anything to the table. 
You cannot bargain with God. You cannot be good enough on your own to be right with God. Salvation is from God, and we are saved by God. He's the one who gives it. And Luke's already used this word in Luke chapter 2 and verse 30 when Simeon held the baby Jesus and proclaimed, My eyes have seen your salvation. Same idea. Jesus' life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection accomplished our salvation. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For if we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You say, well, how do I receive that forgiveness? How do I experience the salvation of God? Through repentance and faith. By turning from the broad way that leads to destruction. And turning to the narrow way that leads to life. By turning away from darkness and stepping in to the light. By believing in what Jesus has done for us so that you can be saved. You see, the light of salvation dawned in the coming of Jesus. Now think about it this way. Jesus became one of us so that he could die for us. Jesus became like us, yet without sin, so that he could free us. Jesus walked among us so that he could guide us. Jesus stayed with us so that he could teach us. Jesus died on the cross so that he could free us from the consequences of sin, not only in this world, but in the one to come. Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the grave to prove that his sin sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father and to demonstrate that what he said about God and sin and redemption and eternal life is true. And we proclaim today that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. And that Jesus came to give to us the salvation of God. Look again at verse 6. And I close with this idea, and I want you to meditate on it for a moment. Everyone will see the salvation of God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will bow and confess because they've been saved. Hopefully that'll be all of us. We'll be in the presence of God exalting the Messiah for all that he's done. But many will see the salvation of God and not experience it. They'll remain dead in their trespasses and their sins, without hope and without light. If that's your spiritual condition today, I want to ask you to turn to God. Why would you not want to walk in the light why would you not want to experience the overwhelming love of God 
Why would you not want to live day by day in the grace of God that is super abundant and beyond what we could even ask or think? Harriet Hine wrote these lines about Christmas, and I'll close in prayer after I share this. If there had been no Christmas morn, no Christ child in a manger born, no shepherds watching in the night, no angel song, nor star of light, then there would be no hope today for this old world where sin holds sway. No peace for souls weighed down with sin, no abiding joy within, no burdens lifted by His grace, no strength to run life's weary race, no sorrows eased, no tempests quelled, no fears dispersed, no doubts dispelled. There'd be no song of praise, no answered prayer, no loving Lord to guide and care. But friend, there was a Christmas morn when Christ, the Son of God, was born. Oh, hallelujah. Praise his name. Hope lives today because Jesus came. Father, we thank you today for salvation that comes from you. We thank you for the life of John the Baptist who was called to an unbelievably important role to make preparation for the coming of Messiah, to make the message of the Messiah known. And he was faithful. Jesus himself said of those born of women, there have been born none who are greater. We thank you, Lord, for his life and his testimony and his willingness even to stand firm to the point of death as your prophet. And we point to the one that he came to prepare the way for. Jesus, our Savior, the gift of Christmas. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who know you and have repented and believed and stepped into the light of forgiveness. I pray you would bless them and their families and watch over them at this Christmas time and that all that we do would be saturated, it would be filled, it would be overflowing with a reminder of who you are and of your great grace. But Lord, I pray if there's even one that's hearing this message in these moments that has not yet believed that today would be the day that they would come to Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life. We give this time of close and response over to you and pray, Lord, that you bless it and move in our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.